it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, April the 7th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show, live from D.C. in our Tony Snow studios. Thank you so much for tuning in. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every day, and we are always grateful when you are here during the program. If you can't catch us live, there's an option. It's the podcast. It is free. It is on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live, plus on our great affiliates all across the country. Then there's the podcast available there for subscription or download. You can also go to foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcast, But we recommend GuyBensonShow.com as your one-stop shop. On today's program, we are busy. Eli Lake will be here coming up later in the hour. Tom Bevan from Real Clear Politics will be here in the next hour talking polls and politics. Miranda Devine, Fox News contributor, New York Post columnist on Hunter Biden and that whole issue, plus an update on a story that we covered yesterday. That'll be in the 5 o'clock hour, our happy hour, straight ahead. I would like to begin today with an announcement that was made yesterday down in Texas by the governor there, Republican Greg Abbott. And then the reaction today, literally minutes ago, from Jen Psaki at the White House on behalf of the president of the United States. We've been covering the border crisis a lot on this show, talking to experts For example, our colleague Bill Malugin, who covers it day in and day out, on the ground with his own eyes. For example, with members of Congress who represent border districts or districts impacted by this crisis. For example, former DHS Acting Secretary Chad Wolf, who was on this show here in studio just this week, who used to run that department. And all of them are unanimous that the Biden administration's decision to end Title 42 and that easy expulsion tool during the pandemic is going to create what is already a crisis and create a full-blown disaster. Virtually everyone is in agreement on that, including a lot of Democrats now on Capitol Hill who are starting to get a little bit of agita over this, a little heartburn They're putting out press releases and statements. They're very concerned, suddenly very concerned about the border crisis because they see how bad it's going to get. They know it's going to be happening in the months leading up to an election that's already looking terrible for them. And wouldn't you know it, that concern has just finally cropped up in their minds. I'm sure it's policy-based. I'm sure it's about the well-being of the country and our national sovereignty and nothing to do with the cataclysm that is coming on the political side for them. Right. I'm trying not to be too cynical, but it's hard. It's hard not to be cynical sometimes. So Greg Abbott has had enough. He has seen enough. It's bad enough as it is. It is really, really bad down in Texas. And I'll just pause here for a moment 
to let you know that coming up in just a few weeks, the Guy Benson Show will be going to the border. It looks like we'll be in Del Rio. We're going to do one, maybe two programs from the southern border. I'm going to be going with some of my colleagues from townhall.com. We're going to be reporting what we see. They're going to be taking us, Texas authorities, up in helicopters and out at night. We're going to actually experience firsthand something that I've only talked about from a distance now. Talked about it a lot with people who know what they're talking about, but I will be there on the ground. And as we get finalized details, we will share those with you. But Abbott is fed up. He's had it up to here. The federal government is failing. They are failing intentionally, it would seem. Morale is scraping the bottom of the barrel for border officials. Texas is trying to do what they can to carry some of the load of enforcement that the feds cannot or will not do. The people, the men and women who want to do that job are being hamstrung by officials in Washington, D.C., and they are also completely overwhelmed. In the last six months, more than a million illegal immigrants have been encountered and apprehended at the southern border. More than a million. That does not count 300,000-plus known gotaways over that same period. And that's before we get to a post-Title 42 utter mess, which is what is expected at the end of next month when that policy goes away. With officials now warning that it could be up to 18,000 encounters every day. 18,000 a day on the high end is their projection. So this already historically massively elevated level is just going to get just explode into the stratosphere this spring and summer. So Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, since he's obviously frustrated by the lack of action at the White House and the terrible decisions being made at the White House. President Biden refuses to go down to the border. It's unclear if he's ever actually been there in any official capacity in the course of his career. And this man has been in politics for roughly 172 years. He certainly has not been down there as vice president or as president of the United States. His border czar, the vice president, can hardly be bothered either. She's MIA down there. So Abbott is basically saying if Biden won't go to the border, maybe we can bring the border crisis to Biden. This was yesterday. Cut 10. To help local officials whose communities are being overwhelmed by hordes of illegal immigrants who are being dropped off by the Biden administration. Texas is providing charter buses to send these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. We are sending them to the United States Capitol, where the Biden administration will be able to more immediately address the needs of the people that they are allowing to come across our border. So apparently they've contracted with 900 buses to put illegal immigrants on the buses and drive them to the Capitol steps. Just let them off there. You might call it a caravan, come to think of it. That would be quite a scene. All right, you guys don't want to come down here. You just say, well, it's our political problem, but it's someone else's logistical problem. Texas is like, all right, let's help with that logistical problem and make it your logistical problem. 
up in D.C. By the way, Ron DeSantis in Florida had the same idea. They were dropping people in the middle of the night in these flights into Florida, unannounced illegal immigrants, captured in Arizona and Texas and then flown all over the country. He was able to get money from the legislature in Florida saying, if you drop them here the way you've been doing it, we're going to reroute them to Delaware, which is the president's home state. Now, just to put this into perspective, and I mentioned this stat on Outnumbered today. I was one lucky guy on Fox News Channel in the noon hour co-hosting that hour. I mentioned this, and I want to reiterate it. It's worth repeating. In the first six months in this fiscal year, since October, as I said, more than a million illegal immigrants encountered at the southern border. 300,000-plus known gotaways. But just taking that number, a million people, which is set to go way up. I mean, millions more in the back half of the fiscal year based on seasonality and new policies. So it's going to get far, far worse. But that million number is already staggering. One million people is more than the entire population of Delaware, the president's state. Delaware has a population just shy of a million. So if you took every single human being living in Delaware, then add a few, that's how many people have come across the border in the last six months and have been caught. In D.C., where the population is, I think, a little north of 700,000, I mean, there are still hundreds of thousands off in terms of the population that has come illegally across the border. You got a bunch of sanctuary states, sanctuary cities, preening, virtue signaling. And I guess what Abbott and DeSantis are saying is, okay, let's see how you deal with it. Let's bring this issue directly to your doorstep, directly to your backyard, and see how you feel about that. So Jen Psaki was asked about this by Peter Ducey, our Fox News colleague, minutes ago, just before we came on the air during the briefing. Here is that exchange at Cut 37. Now that the Texas governor is saying that he's going to start busing border crossers to Washington, D.C., when they get here, are you guys going to help them find a place to stay and something for them to do? Well, I'm not aware of what authority uh, the governor would be doing that under. I think it's pretty clear this is a publicity stunt. His own uh, office admits that a migrant would need to voluntarily uh, be transported, um, and he can't compel them to because, again, enforcement of our country's immigration laws lies with the federal government, not a state. Washington, D.C.? Well, listen, I don't know, but I know that the governor of uh, Texas or any state does not have the legal authority to compel anyone to get on a bus. Oh, suddenly there are sticklers about legal authorities in the realm of illegal immigration, an issue on which they are failing badly, if not intentionally, if you look at the way that they have set up these policies. Right. You can just draw a straight line from the actions and words and policies of this administration directly to the crisis. And now when you've got a border governor swamped by this uh, by all of this, by this stuff, saying, "Okay, fine, we're going to take these folks, put them on buses and bring them right up to Washington, D.C. They're like, well, uh, the the technically the uh, the legal authorities to compel. I'm sorry. What's the legal authority of these folks to cross the border illegally? They say, well, this is the province of the federal government. Okay, how's that going? It's going terribly. Because of your policies. 
Now, look, we live in a nation of laws. I just find it extremely rich for this administration to be invoking the rule of law in this context, given their absolute shameless contempt for the rule of law when it comes to our sovereignty and our immigration laws. But they're going to really turn the screws on Greg Abbott for putting, oh, you can't put them on buses. That's our job. We're the ones who are going to put them on buses and airplanes and fly them wherever they want. We're the ones that are going to give them taxpayer-funded cell phones. That's a new thing. That's real. That's happening. Saki was defending that one yesterday. That's our realm. That's our jurisdiction. Okay. Let's see how you feel when the failures of your jurisdiction might be showing up right near where you live. And by the way, why wouldn't want, why wouldn't these illegal immigrants voluntarily want to get on buses and come to D.C.? To all the very generous liberal people who live in D.C. who I'm sure will just open their homes. I wonder, does Jen Psaki in her, uh, her house, does she have a little sign on the front yard? In this house, we believe. And then a bunch of left-wing slogans. You've seen those. Hell, do they have one out on the South Lawn at the White House? If the consequences of the policy failures that are felt acutely every day by the people of Texas were felt acutely every day by people like Jen Psaki and Joe Biden, I wonder if this conversation might play out a little bit differently. Oh, it's just a publicity stunt. It's just a publicity stunt by Greg Abbott. You know what? Maybe it's kind of a publicity stunt. It's kind of a bit of a troll. But he is at his wits end down there. And the Democrats, to the extent that they only or ever want to talk about this, it comes when they feel like there might be a political price for them to pay at the polls. Then all of a sudden, oh, this crisis. Yeah, let's uh, furrow our brows. Suddenly they're tuned into this crisis. It's a a publicity stunt, says the White House. Unlike when the vice president went down there, the border czar, to check a box, didn't really go to the border, didn't go to a sector that was overrun, didn't see really anything controversial or of note. No, heaven forbid we have a, a publicity stunt. And to the extent that this is a publicity stunt, the goal is to bring the wages of what is happening just a taste of the reality directly into the backyard front yard, perhaps, of the people who are responsible for that mess. Oh, but the White House is concerned about legal authorities and publicity stunts. Spare me. I'm curious to see how this goes. See if this caravan happens. And if there is a big drop-off right in D.C., right by Pennsylvania Avenue, what will the good super woke left-wing denizens of Washington, D.C., what will they do? What will they have to say about it? How will they act? Maybe uh, open up some of their multiple spare bedrooms. Maybe uh, open up the pool house for some of these folks. Think that's going to happen? Think that's likely? A lot of room at the White House. A lot of room on that lawn. Just saying. 
All right, we got a break. We are just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from D.C., where these folks might be showing up sometime soon. We will take that break and be right back. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Fox News Alert. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. That was earlier this afternoon in the U.S. Senate. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmed the United States Supreme Court. You heard the tally there of the yeas and nays from the vice president who was presiding in the chamber, 53 to 47, a narrow confirmation, mostly along party lines. All 50 Democrats in favor, three Republicans as well, Collins, Murkowski, Romney. I've given you my thoughts on that already recently, in fact, this week on the show, and I've written about it as well. I will say this. She is not the type of jurist that would be at the top of my list. I also recognize that we have a Democratic president and a Democrat-controlled Senate, and this is exactly the type of ideological nominee that you would expect from that combination. If you were hoping for someone maybe with more of a moderate reputation or track record of jurisprudence, then the Republicans shouldn't have lost both Senate seats in Georgia, handing control of the chamber over to Chuck Schumer and company. I think that she's an impressive person. I think that she's qualified in terms of her experience. I fear that her jurisprudence and her decisions will be predictably left wing. But you never know. And I will wish her the best and hope that she adheres to the Constitution and maybe Uh, surprises folks like me in a positive way. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. But my predictions from day one when the vacancy was announced back in January have basically all come to pass almost to a T. I'm proud of that analysis, uh, analysis, even though I'm not like waving the pom-poms about the result here. Katanji Brown-Jackson will be an associate justice on the Supreme Court. 53-47 confirmed today. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free. In the last segment, we brought you that vote, the final tally from the U.S. Senate with Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. 53 to 47, she will take her spot on the high court when Justice Breyer 
retires at the end of this term. So she's confirmed, but she has to wait. There was also another vote that we were following earlier today at the United Nations. We rarely follow votes at the U.N. because so often they are pointless and worse. Today, the General Assembly was voting on the prospect of sidelining or booting the Russians from the Human Rights Council. And I put that term human rights in air quotes because the United Nations Human Rights Council is a farce, a sick joke. I guess the good news is the General Assembly needed a two-thirds majority of voting members and they got it, although dozens of nation members simply abstained. So some real courage on display there. But of the uh, member states that did vote one way or the other, the two-thirds threshold was met, and Russia has now been at least temporarily suspended from the human rights body of the United Nations. Uh, like, what, what a commentary that they were on there to begin with. The worst news is that members of that panel still include China, which is currently engaged in an ongoing genocide, Libya, Sudan, Cuba, Venezuela, I mean, the list goes on, countries that criminalize homosexuality, put people to death. I mentioned, you know, oh, yeah, the genocide, that thing. They're still on the Human Rights Council in good standing. Why the United States dignifies that group with any credibility or legitimacy is beyond me. But at least Russia got the slap on the wrist today. They're off, at least for now. And joining us now is Eli Lake, national security journalist. He's also a fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Eli, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Guy. Just quickly, your reaction to the General Assembly. Uh, I was calling for the Biden administration to try to force a vote like this weeks ago. They finally got around to it. It has come to pass. I guess I'd rather have Russia not on the Human Rights Council than on it. But I'm not really sure if this solves much of anything aside from just, you know, one more example of international condemnation. And I'm, I'm fine with that, I guess, as far as it goes. It's a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Um, the the fact that the, that Russia has a veto and is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, which is the one committee at the UN that matters to an extent, because the UN Security Council in theory is uh, the way in which you can sort of legitimize inter, international interventions, and its resolutions count in a sense uh, as articles of international law. I mean, that's that's what sort of matters. Um, and the problem is, is that, as you pointed out bef uh, before, you know, this interview with me, is that, you know, Sudan, Libya, China, Venezuela, they're still on the U.N. Secure, uh, Human Rights Council. So there's a potential here that, you know, kicking off Russia, which obviously in the abstract is a good thing, it, does that mean that the, the U.N. Human Rights Council is now legitimate? Of course it doesn't. I mean, it, it exists in many ways to demonize Israel. You know, I don't think it, it had anything to say, uh, you know, over the past decade about the war in Syria, which was far more costly than the sort of occasional uh, flare-ups between Israel and, and Hamas. Um, it's, uh, you know, so, so I think that there's a potential here that 
the Human Rights Council will get some sort of legitimacy because it took this action. And the bigger problem is the U.N. itself, you know, what Vladimir Putin did five weeks ago uh, is he, you know, effectively set the U.N. charter ablaze. He, he committed with zero sort of fig leaf of any kind of justification under international law, which is a bit of a change from his past predations. He invaded another country, claimed in a speech before the invasion that Ukraine never really existed, shouldn't be a country. I mean, that cuts to the very heart of the U.N. itself. And I think it's a crisis. And the real way to address this is not with sort of Band-Aid stuff like this with the Human Rights Council, which makes us feel good. It's to think about an alternative to the United Nations and to think about shrinking its membership in order to make sure that the members of this new international organization that would in some ways kind of replace the U.N. are not dedicated to undermining the international system the way that Russia is, the way that China is, the way that Iran is. And that's that's mm-hmm. the, the real challenge. And so I would like to see a whole lot more. I'm not going to say it's bad that Russia has kicked off the UN, UN Human Rights Council, but it doesn't doesn't really mean all that much at this point. No, I mean, I will say to your earlier point, it was a bit disorienting to see a vote at the United Nations that was not condemning Israel. I was like, where am I? What's happening here? It seems like that <laughs> body only exists at times to come after the one tiny Jewish state in the world that's like sort of their, their thing. It's what they uh, enjoy doing, and they seem to do it more than anything else. The other thing is the Trump administration, the previous administration, I think was right to pull the United States out of the Human Rights Council, given how preposterous the membership is when you look at just egregious serial abuses. I think just to say we're not going to dignify any of this with U.S. prestige uh, or money was the right call. But, you know, Biden and the Democrats are obsessed with this idea of globalist, uh, you know, like multilateralism at all costs, no matter what. And so they got us back in at the cost of millions of dollars, by the way, for the privilege of sitting on that council which now, I guess, has one serial abuser uh, off and the rest of them still there. I want to ask you about this, Eli, because, of course, we're talking about Ukraine and Russia and this war, and the invasion was an outrage unto itself. There are now new levels of outrage, and the Senate voted unanimously earlier to strip Russia of favored trade status, 100 to 0. Because, among other things, people are watching these war crimes play out and the evidence of the war crimes coming to light as Ukrainians take back portions of land around Kiev. There's a city called Borodyanka. We talked about Bucha. This is another city where residents say the Russians on their way out basically bombed apartment buildings filled with civilians intentionally. And there was rubble and people could – and this is extremely disturbing and upsetting to say and report. But the reports are – the testimony from eyewitnesses is that you could hear voices crying for help from under the rubble. And the Russian soldiers were threatening the Ukrainians saying, if you try to dig people out, if you do anything, we will shoot you. I mean it's just unimaginable the brutality of the Russians and the people that they're targeting, not military targets but men, women, and children – Eli, and the revulsion of the world continues to ratchet up. You talked a little bit about solutions. You have a big piece out at Commentary entitled, The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. 
What are some of your big points in that piece? Well, um, first and foremost, the United States needs to begin thinking about a break with the broader autocratic world. And we can start with Russia. And that means not just energy independence for Europe, but to get America back into the game as an energy exporter and creating new secure supply chains so that things like rare earth minerals and rare earth metals, which are dominated by Russia and China today, um, are no longer that we, we will have access to those kinds of materials that are necessary for everything from smart bombs to cell phones to satellites. And so that's very important. Um, another important element is to, as I said before, talking about kind of reforming the international community. So in some cases, like the UN Human Rights Council, if it's possible, kick Russia out. And I would do that with lots of other UN and international committees, such as the, you know, the, the bodies that determine standards for the global internet and things like that. But if there are situations where you really can't get very far in that regard, such as the UN Security Council, then you have to start thinking about alternatives. Another thing is that we have to start planning to really invest in our military in a way that will make it possible to have, the, have at least the capability to fight and win two wars uh, in two different distinct parts well, hold of the on. world. Let's just because, pause. Let's pause for yeah. a second, Eli, because you're talking about maybe alternatives to the U.N. Security Council. I'm intrigued by that. I'm just wondering what that could look like, because here's the reality. You've got a number of nations that have permanent seats on the Security Council, including the yeah, United States right. and some of our very close allies. However, two of those votes are the countries that I would say are most likely to be large powers that would engage in hostilities, including things like invading, oh, I don't know, Ukraine or Taiwan. Like when you have some of the worst actors in the modern era with permanent veto power, it does, I think, highlight the the dilemma here where the U.N. Security Council kind of is rendered useless if one of the bad acting countries decides to do something bad. Russia held the presidency as it invaded Ukraine. So it so we had a Russian ambassador chairing a debate that was aimed at entirely at convincing Russia not to invade Ukraine. And the ambassador lied to the and, and there were there were no real consequences. My point here is that we have, especially under Democratic administrations, we place an enormous value in getting U.N. Security Council resolutions to advance you know, U.S. interests, whether it be on the Iran nuclear file or the effort before the 2003 Iraq war to get a U.N. Security Council resolution. And this is something that American presidents actually should say, because George W. Bush was a Republican. Both parties have placed a lot of emphasis in, and that gives China and Russia leverage over the United States, which is seeking to do things in the world that are really kind of, you know, protecting the international commons, dealing with things like uh, nuclear proliferation, or in the case of Saddam, punishing him for, you know, not complying with various UN Security Council resolutions and from 1991 and afterwards. So all of that is the wrong approach. So at the very least, the United States should make it very clear as a matter of policy that it doesn't consider the U.N. Security Council, when it has Russia as a veto-wielding member, to be a legitimate font of international law. And then to then look to kind of create smaller international institutions of allies or serious or countries that are not going to be using these kinds of seats as leverage when the United States usually is acting in, in sort of a global interest 
Um, and then, you know, beginning to invest that kind of legitimacy. But it's all part of a longer strategy because I'm not talking about in the next six months. I'm talking about over, you know, really a generation. We have to sort of prepare for a big, broad approach. And, and that includes, I'd also say, solidarity with Russians and Chinese and Iranians who seek uh, a democratic form of government and freedom for themselves. It doesn't mean that we are going to be kind of, you know, instructing them or controlling these groups like, you know, the CIA, you know, fomented coups during the Cold War and things like that. But it does mean that we know that there are plenty of very brave Russians who just in during this war, you know, have risked arrests and beatings in order to protest, you know, what Vladimir Putin is doing. Well, those are our natural allies, and we have to figure out secure lines of communication and ways to advantage them, whether that means providing satellite access to the Internet that can't be shut down by these regimes or other kinds of creative ways to shield their communication from the sort of government monitors and sensors and things like that. But that's in our long-term interest as well. So it's a sort of – I try to map out a sort of longer-term grand strategy for how to deal with this problem. But we, well, we have to make sure that we stop, Guy, and then I'll stop here – is that we, we can no longer pretend that we, get to, we can work with a country like Russia on other issues when they have done something like this to Ukraine, when we see all the evidence of the war crimes and everything else like that. So the idea that the Biden administration, maybe they've finally given it up, is still working with Russia to guarantee an Iran nuclear deal yeah. undermines Biden's, I think, correct assessment that Putin is now a pariah, that Putin is a war criminal. Wouldn't it be great, you know, God, we can't let Putin, we can't let Putin, you know, control, run Russia or whatever you said uh, 10 days ago in Europe. That right there, he's undermining that by kind of sticking with this old playbook. Republicans and Democrats did this. I mean, really, I mean, Trump began to sort of mix it up, but that is, that those days are over. And so that's the most important. Think of the break, think of that sort of economic resilience, think about alternative political institutions, solidarity with freedom movements. And finally, we have to get back to understanding that we are not a moral abomination in America. And we have to reject what I would say is the national conservative, nationalist conservatives and the sort of socialist left really think that anything America ever does in the world in terms of intervention is just a kind of atrocity, a moral atrocity. That's not true. We know that we're better than Russia. The Iraq war, you can have plenty of criticism of it. It cannot be compared to what is being done right now, which is Russia's war to basically negate Ukraine. What we did was we saved Iraq from a dictator. We, 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 we helped them write a new constitution. They have had successive elections. It hasn't been perfect. There have been a lot of mistakes the United States made, but we are... Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the moral the- equivalencies are just totally baseless and, and bankrupt, I agree with you on that. Quickly, about a minute left, Eli, since you brought up the Iran deal, I saw that there was a group of Democrats, House Democrats, who held a press conference to raise their concerns and, uh, you know, talk about uh, and voice those worries over what's happening. Do you think that the Biden administration might be worried about their own side, their own team, so to speak, kind of uh, undermine or sandbag this effort that they're still, I guess, trying to get at? I mean, they should be worried about that. And I would imagine that they're kind of finally hearing some of these more moderate Democrats saying that. But I don't think that's necessarily what's driving this. What's driving this is that the Russians and the Iranians are allies and that we that anybody with eyes in their head, except for apparently Rob Malley, the U.S. envoy to talks, right. can understand if you have a brain, you can understand that the Russians are not interested 
in, in, in preventing Iran from becoming this regional hegemon and having a breakout nuclear capacity. They're allies. They just did military exercises with China in the right, And they're Ocean negotiating on our behalf. And it's like the idea that they have our best interests at heart is laughably untrue and naive. And it would be a boon and a win for Russia and for Iran if this thing goes through. And insanely, that is still the goal and the pursuit and the policy of the Biden administration over the objection of basically every every Republican in Washington, D.C., and now a growing chorus of Democrats as well. Eli Lake, we've got to leave it there for now. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Eli, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. So they are really cracking down in China right now. In Shanghai, they're very worried about a COVID outbreak. So they are locking down hardcore. And they're sending drones around to stifle dissent and warn people it is some of the creepiest, most dystopian stuff that I've seen. Just listen. Cut 35. So it's just this woman's voice being broadcast from a drone. The translation is comply with COVID restrictions. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do not open the window or sing. Whoa. Are we allowed to criticize this, or is that sinophobic and racist? Thank God we have our freedoms here. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. You want to stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. My name is Guy Benson. I'm your host. Very pleased to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can read my stuff at townhall.com, where I'm a political editor. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy P. Benson. Same on Instagram. You can follow our show at Guy Benson Show on both of those platforms. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, I'm a Fox News contributor. I was on the Outnumbered panel today. That was a lot of fun, as it always is with the ladies. GuyBensonShow.com for all the radio side needs. As we begin our middle hour, Fox News alert. The Dow in the green today after on the schneid for a few days. It closes up 87 points, ending the day at 34,584. Joining us now is Tom Bevan. Co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. You can follow him on Twitter, as I do, at TomBevanRCP. Tom, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. All right. Let's talk about some polling that I've noticed recently. And I just want to get your analysis, starting with this a survey, a national survey from Civics, which was a pretty broad-based survey of the country. And then they broke it down state by state. They asked the American people about President Biden's job approval rating, which I think at this stage in a cycle, midterm or otherwise, remains really the most important data point or metric with seven months to go till the election, the president's approval rating. 
is 37% in this poll, with 53% disapproving. That's underwater by 16 points. Among independent voters, not Republicans, not Democrats, independents, it's 26% approve, 62% disapprove. So that's a minus 36 rating. And you go down the list of some of these states, and, I mean, a couple of these have big Senate races upcoming. He's at 34% in Georgia, 35% in Arizona, 36% in Nevada, 38% in Pennsylvania, 40% in Wisconsin. Uh, that's pretty precarious territory given the importance of those states to the Democrats when it comes to control of not just you know, governor's mansions but the United States Senate. Well, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean the – you got to look at the president's job approval, right? And it's it, it is the single uh, most important factor to look at, uh, particularly with respect to the midterm elections. And it makes sense. I mean, if you if you approve of the job that the the person in charge is doing, you're going to be more likely to vote in favor of, uh, you know, in in favor of his party. Um, and if you don't, then you're more likely to vote for for a change. Um, you know, if you look at Biden's job approval rating in our Real Clear Politics average, it's 41.5 percent. He got a little bit of bump out of the State of the Union that dissipated uh, almost exactly within two weeks. And uh, if you look at the if you look at the generic congressional vote, which is the question that pollsters ask, if the election were held today, would you vote for Republican or Democrat? It's 42.5. So. You know, Democrats are, are polling slightly better than the president himself, but not by much. And and they're trailing Republicans by about three and a half points in that generic congressional ballot, which anyone who follows politics knows Democrats typically uh, overperform on the generic congressional ballot. They usually have a lead um, because of the way that they're distributed throughout the country. But that's not how the vote works, particularly in, in midterms. We're talking about, you know. As you mentioned, some some important swing states, swing districts where uh, swing voters are going to be very important. And to your point, among swing voters, it's even worse for the Democrats. I mean, it's it's they're trailing Republicans in the congressional ballot from anywhere from you know 15 to 18 points. So uh, everywhere the Democrats are looking right now, it's 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 doom and gloom. I mean, there's hardly a bright spot to be found. Yeah, I mean, and. I cited that number out of Wisconsin where he's at 40 percent approval Biden in the Badger state. I saw a headline just yesterday. There is a county level executive just elected in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. We remember what happened in Kenosha a few a few summers ago. And this is the first time a Republican had ever won that kind of race in that county, which is sort of a bluish swing county at the very southern edge of Wisconsin and you just cross over into Illinois. It's not like a deep blue area, but for a Republican to have won this type of uh, local election where Republicans had never won before, I mean, that gives you just another data point along this breadcrumb trail toward November, dating back to last year in New Jersey with the 12, 13 point swing away from the Democrats. And then, of course, in Virginia, 12 point swing, which swept the Republicans into power in Virginia. I mean, it just seems like not just the polling, Tom, but outcomes, outcomes from statewide elections in blue states to county level elections and like, you know, state legislative seats. There's been a pretty common theme 
And so for people to say, oh, well, maybe they'll outperform the president, maybe we're focused too much on Biden, I would say at the at the local or more granular level, the results are mirroring the national you know, trends. I think that's part of the problem that they have to grapple with right now on the Democratic side. A hundred percent correct. And, you know, you look back at some of the past midterm elections and, you know, in 2010, for example, Barack Obama's first midterm election uh, and his job approval rating was was well above where President Biden is now by about five, five or seven points um, at this point in the cycle. And, you know, we all know how that turned out. I mean, Democrats lost 63 House seats uh, and a number of Senate seats. And so in 2014, uh, I was just talking about that last night on Laura Ingram's show. She was asking whether the scorched earth rhetoric that that the Democrats are now employing, uh, you know, calling Republicans a party of fear, fraud and fascism and and saying that, uh, you know, Tom Cotton calling him, you know, Jamie Harrison calling him a maggot infested individual whether that would be enough to sort of scare Democrats into, um, into you know, m- motivate them uh, for the midterm elections. But there's no indication that that kind of rhetoric, first of all, it doesn't appeal to swing voters. So whatever you might gain out of <laughs> motivating your base, you're going to lose the middle. So it, it's not an additive uh, strategy. Um, but there's no, there's no indication that it would necessarily even motivate base uh, Democrats as well. There are a lot of Democrats – or I should say, at least a section of Democrats that are, are who voted for Biden, but are, have a, have buyer's remorse, and it just are not. Uh, they don't believe they got what they they bargained for with this administration, and certainly when it comes to handling, uh, you know, important issues like inflation in the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were mentioning that congressional ballot, the generic ballot. Quinnipiac had a new poll out. And Republicans had a four-point lead in their numbers. Forty-seven percent of Americans said that they would vote for Republicans to control Congress, 43 percent for the Democrats. Uh, As you noted, for the Republicans to be tied, let alone ahead, is usually a sign of very dark things to come for the Democrats. When you look at this metric over recent history and you look at at sort of that, that arc, for the GOP to be up, Four, three, six, you know, depending on what poll you look at, that's significant. And, Tom, in the Quinnipiac numbers, they broke down the generic ballot by demographic. And, of course, Republicans are leading among independents. They have a massive lead among men. They're trailing among women by 10 points, but the gender gap is heavily slanted in the GOP direction because they're up, you know, 16 points or something among men. And then this one caught my attention, Hispanics. And this is not the this is not some weird outlier at this point, right? Hispanics were asked, you know, who would you rather see control Congress? It is statistically tied. 43 Republican, 43 Democrat. There have been a whole string of polls at this point, Tom, that show Republicans nationally very competitive with Hispanics. And that's not just interesting heading into this November. That's interesting overall in my book in terms of a potential political realignment that could very much throw a wrench into this permanent Democratic majority based on demographic destiny that a lot of progressives have been really invested in. Uh, absolutely, 100 percent. I mean, it could be a real sea change. I mean, Democrats won't be able to win uh, national elections if, if they can't 
you know, continued to win two-thirds of the Hispanic vote and, and 90 to 95 percent of the African-American vote because they've lost ground so much among white voters. But to your point, you go back to the same Quinnipiac poll, Biden's approval rating in that poll overall is 38 percent, um, but among Hispanics, only 34 mm-hmm. percent. And and that's a direct correlation to why they're they are splitting their votes, uh, you know, with Republicans. And again, this is an economic issue. I mean, there are cultural markers there that Hispanics, uh, you know, I think uh, might might align themselves more with Republicans than some of the woke stuff that the Democrats are doing. But primarily, this is, you know, it's working class. It doesn't matter if you're black or Hispanic or white. Uh, if you're if you are struggling in this economy, paying five dollars a gallon or six dollars a gallon for gas and you know, uh, groceries that are 20 percent higher than they used to be and looking around at college tuition, all the things, health care. Um, you know, the Democrats hold all the levers of power in Washington. And, and so they are going to be held responsible, whether that's fair or not. Um, they're going to be held responsible for, uh, you know, for for those results. Well, and I would say, it's, in my opinion, it's mostly fair. It's mostly fair. And things would be worse if they had gotten their way and they didn't have a handful of senators saying, whoa, let's slam on the brakes here. They wanted to spend five trillion more dollars on a bunch of nonsense. And they came within just, you know, a whisper of of succeeding. Tom Bevan, I want to ask you about a different poll. This is out of Georgia. It comes from Emerson. And they I guess they teamed up with some other uh, local news organization down there. But they were polling the statewide races in Georgia, which has been kind of ground zero of American political battle for the last two years. And one of the most interesting findings to me is it's yet another poll very similar to our most recent Fox News poll on this that has the incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, a Republican, leading in his primary over David Perdue, the former senator who lost in the uh, runoffs in January of 2021. He's challenged Kemp in a primary for governor with the backing of former President Trump, because Trump has a bunch of grievances with Kemp. I think that they're nonsense grievances. But even if you agree with them, Kemp is hanging in there. He's up 11 on Purdue. I know there's still a ways to go, but I think the the expectation that the Trump backed guy would just overtake the incumbent. Clearly, that has not happened thus far. And in the general election matchups polled in this same survey, the incumbent, Brian Kemp, uh, out polls performs better than David Perdue against Stacey Abrams, who is the uh, the Democratic nominee in waiting. And so th- they both lead her. I think Perdue's up like four, but three or four. Kemp is up seven or eight. And Kemp is ahead of Perdue in the primary by 11. You know, I'm under no illusions that, you know, Donald Trump is still an extremely powerful figure within the Republican Party and will likely remain so for a while. But you know, his single handed ability to come in and, and take out a governor that he doesn't like on the Republican side is really running into a, a challenge down there in Georgia. We have a big affiliate in Atlanta at Extra. I know they're they're following this race very closely. What's your analysis of that dynamic? Yeah, I agree. I mean, and this is this is happening not just in Georgia, but in other places around the country where the Trump back candidates, whether it's in governor's races or Senate races, even some House candidates, are struggling in their in their primaries. Um, this was this is to your point probably the most high profile given what just happened in 2020 uh, and the way that Trump really went after Brian Kemp. People thought that that he would be vulnerable when Purdue jumped in, 
they thought this would be, uh, you know, one of those races where, uh, you know, Purdue would be the favorite and win the nomination. But he is struggling to get traction. I think that is a bit surprising because he is, you know, he's a, he's a well-known uh, candidate in Georgia. He's a quality candidate. Um, but, but Kemp is, is really, uh, I think, doing, running a better campaign and doing a better job of, of neutralizing Purdue's attacks. They don't seem to be having the bite that, that a lot of us thought they were going to have. Um, and so, you yeah. know, this would be a big loss for Trump. I mean, if he can't, uh, of all the races that are out there, this is probably the marquee endorsement for him um, based on what happened in 2020. And so th- this primary is in May 24th. So we got about, you know, I don't know, month and a half left. Before month and a half. Yeah. David Perdue better yeah. be hoping he won't get unendorsed because Trump's done that. Uh, recently he in a Senate race. His well, his yeah. preferred horse wasn't doing so well. So he said, oh, never mind on that endorsement. I'm going to get behind someone else. Uh, no longer Mo Brooks. That was down in Alabama. I would just make a, one more point on on Georgia, Tom, which is in that same poll. Uh, Raphael Warnock was the, the senator down there. Neck and neck, slightly behind Herschel Walker. Both of those candidates have uh, some significant baggage. But I think Warnock realizes this is going to be a dogfight because he's out there making noise about Title 42. He's worried about the border crisis. This is someone who has saluted everything Chuck Schumer has asked him to do. But I guess the the border stuff is likely to be so ugly that even Raphael Warnock is trying to at least pretend to have some bipartisan concern about this. So, uh, again, once again, Georgia becomes... A ground zero for some really key races in 2022 at the governor level, at the Senate level, and some of the races down on the House side as well. We're watching it all very closely here. So is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics. Tom, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick break. Let's come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. Ooh, on the broadcast, I do love this song. This was the uh, old show open. Oh, one of our favorites. One of our favorites. I wanted to just kind of let that play for a moment there. Uh, so here's some news today. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, has tested positive for COVID. On one hand, she is 82. So that is uh, very much in the danger zone. From COVID. On the other hand, she is asymptomatic and apparently feeling fine and has three shots, maybe even four. So I see a lot of the headlines DC rattled by a rash of COVID positive tests. Overall, in DC, the numbers are very low. Yes, you have the Attorney General Merrick Garland, I guess, has it. Another cabinet member has it. A few members of Congress. There might have been something of a super spreader event at the. Uh, that big dinner, what, what do they call that dinner up in, uh, in New York where they all tease each other, gridiron dinner? That might have been one event. Plus, there were some White House events. So people are sort of tracking Pelosi's movements. She was with Obama. She was with Biden. Now, Biden is also really up there at 79. He has four shots. So, you know, hopefully, even though he's been exposed, he'll be OK. Pelosi so far hanging in there without even symptoms. So, you know, I guess it's news that these powerful people are testing positive. But to me, if they are vaccinated or 
not showing any strong or powerful symptoms and they're generally feeling okay, I just don't know if it's like a huge, like, you know, sirens alert type thing. There's hope that's an easy situation for Pelosi and that the president didn't catch it from her or anyone else, right? That's, That's the hope, certainly. But they're all like, you know, vaxxed up the wazoo. So that's the good news. Guy Benson Show continues. Miranda Devine next. CBS News has learned that more than 150 transactions involving either Hunter or James Biden's global business affairs were flagged as concerning by U.S. banks for further review. Some of those concerns included large wire transfers. After a nearly three-year investigation, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley told CBS News he believes the president's younger brother, James, was instrumental in Hunter Biden's Chinese business ventures. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. It's a private matter. Uh, We refer all questions to uh, other people. That's the White House response to all of this. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. And with me now to discuss is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and author of the book Laptop from Hell, uh, which is highly relevant these days again. Miranda, welcome back to the show. Oh, Thanks, Guy. Great to be with you. I want to just walk through with you this piece that you have co-authored at the New York Post, because we've heard now over and over again from the White House, they're trying to have it every way possible. They're trying to say president's confidence that his son hasn't done anything wrong, but we can't actually comment on that. We refer you over to the DOJ or his personal lawyers. This is really all just a private matter involving the president's son. It does not involve the president himself at all. And the piece that you co-authored at the Post lists a dozen examples where actually it would at least appear on some level this is not just a Hunter Biden story. It is also a Joe Biden story. Walk us through that, if you would. Yeah, thanks, Guy. Look, I mean, these are just a dozen of many more uh, instances where Joe Biden knew exactly what his son Hunter was doing and was involved with his overseas business dealings. Um, One example, uh, we just had a story uh, earlier in the week that that Joe Biden wrote letters of recommendation to Brown University for the son of one one of Hunter's business partners uh, in China, Jonathan Lee. He also wrote a letter for the daughter of Jonathan Lee. Jonathan Lee was the guy that Hunter went into business with um, after his father flew him into Beijing on Air Force Two. And Joe shook the hand of Jonathan Lee. And shortly after that, Hunter had got a 10% cut in a Chinese private equity firm called BHR, which last time I looked, 2019 had $2.5 billion worth of funds under management. So that was one involvement. Uh, he also, well, hang on. Let's, uh, just, let's pause there for a second, because mm. people might say to themselves, all right, fine, uh, Miranda. So there was a, a handful of letters written to recommend some Chinese guys' kids to get into some you know, American colleges. Is that really that big of a deal? What would your response be? Why is it significant? Because Joe Biden told us repeatedly before the election that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. So just this one example, he not only met his son's business partner that was about to tip him into this very lucrative fund, uh, shook his hand 
um, you know, after bringing his son on Air Force Two to Beijing to do private business. He also did favours for this Chinese businessman uh, on behalf of his son. So, I mean, that's being involved. That's being knowledgeable at the very least. Uh, you know, we also know that Joe Biden met with uh, so many of Hunter Biden's overseas business partners. Um, he met with Russians and Kazakhstanis, Ukrainians, Chinese, Mexicans, uh, and, you know, he met Jonathan Lee in Beijing, but he invited uh, some of Hunter's uh, prospects and um, benefactors to his residence, the vice presidential residence in Washington, D.C. at the Naval Observatory. Well, and as you pointed out, on, on one of those trips to China, he provided the transportation for his son, Air Force Two taxpayer-funded trip, Hunter Biden hops on, flies over there with dad while he's the sitting vice president, and then strikes a major surprise, whoa, out of nowhere, this huge Chinese lucrative deal. And Biden Sr., Joe, says, oh, I, I just didn't know anything about any of that. It just doesn't, it doesn't wash. It doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous. There were so many times that Hunter Biden flew on Air Force Two with his dad overseas to do private business. Uh, you know, there was another one in Mexico um, on board Air Force Two. Hunter is writing an email to one of his business partners in Mexico City, and he says, Dad and I are flying in now. Um, we really want you and your parents to meet us at the tarmac. Uh, so... Um, you know, this this is a family business. It's an influence peddling scheme, a family business. Um, it, it, another example that we have in the paper today is um, that uh, Hunter has admitted that he discussed with his father his job on the board of that Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, which was paying him $83,000 a month while Joe was vice president. Uh, and that his Burisma payments went on for four years. But after Joe And by the Biden, way, Biden, Joe Biden was the point person for the Obama, uh, the Obama administration on Ukraine policy at the time. Then his son, with no qualifications, gets the $83,000 a month gig at some energy firm in Ukraine. Another happy coincidence for Hunter. Exactly. And the the reason that you know that that had uh, everything to do with Joe Biden is that once Joe Biden was no longer vice president, Hunter's payment from Burisma was cut in half within a month. So uh, also we knew that there were people within the, within the State Department, uh, the Obama State Department, who were concerned about Hunter's uh, appearance on the board of Burisma because it undercut what America was telling Ukraine about corruption. I mean, every time Joe Biden flew to Kiev, which was often, he would give these thundering speeches railing against corruption in Ukraine, uh, telling the Ukrainians that they needed to stamp out corruption in order to get ahead and have America really support them. And uh, at the same time, his own son is being paid by uh, a, a um, corrupt uh, energy company that is being investigated by the chief prosecutor in Ukraine and whose owner, Zlochevsky, Hunter's 
paymaster, uh, was under investigation in Britain. He had had $23 million of his money frozen in a bank account there. Um, so Joe Biden was aware of this. He was warned about this twice, face-to-face by State Department employees who said to him, sir, this is a problem for us. The Russians are making meal of it. They're using it as disinformation to undermine us. And nothing happened. Hunter continued on. Throughout well, yeah, and then and then the campaign trail, the guy's running for president for the third time in 2020. It might have been all the way back in 19, actually, when our colleague Peter Ducey asked him about any knowledge, any conversations about any of this he ever had with his son. And Biden sort of irritated, denied any knowledge, any conversations ever. And there's just absolutely no way that that's true. And here's the other question, Miranda, that keeps bothering me. And I raised this on TV earlier on outnumbered when the White House and other Democrats insist, and I know, you know, Ron Klain among them, so there's just no evidence that the president himself is involved in any of this. We've seen journalists, you know, Andrea Mitchell making this point at NBC. Oh, Biden, you know, that this might be bad and this is a headache and it's not good for them. They've, I guess, moved on from the Russian disinformation point. Now they're just trying to <laughs> downplay the whole thing. But it's like they're totally unaware of, and maybe they are, or maybe they're just trying to keep their audience unaware of the quote-unquote big guy email, where at least there's an appearance, credibly, that Joe Biden had money earmarked for him in one of these deals with China. Just 30 seconds, Miranda, your thoughts on that? Well, there's always going to be an excuse for the media trying to cover uh, up for Joe Biden and also cover for their own malfeasance for um, basically election interference before the last election, refusing to um, follow our story, refusing to acknowledge that it had any merit, and also going along with that fake letter by the 51 former intelligence officials who should hang their heads in shame. Yeah, if they have any, because they, they were part of a gang trying to achieve something in an election and it worked but yeah the the changing tune here on that laptop and the evidence and the materials is dramatic and in fact i will address that in the upcoming segment moments from now miranda devine on the guy benson show thank you miranda and we'll be right back with that story next Back on the Guy Benson Show. So I guess they're having a forum at the University of Chicago on misinformation and disinformation. And it sounds like quite a lot of disinformation and misinformation has been ignored or even defended at this conference. For example, I saw Barack Obama was there and he was lamenting the omnipresence of misinformation in our politics. I seem to recall a certain someone saying that everyone could keep their health care plan under Obamacare, saying that over and over and over again. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. No one will take it away from you no matter what, period, I believe was almost exactly the verbatim quote. And fact checkers, as a matter of fact, fact checkers rated that claim as true over and over again with conservatives saying, well, hang on, based on the way this bill and this law is structured, people are not going to be able to necessarily keep their plans, even if they like them. There will be plans that are made illegal. People can't have them anymore. There will be incentives in the market to cancel existing plans, to shift to other arrangements. 
So you can't make this blanket claim that if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. But the president kept saying it. His defenders and fellow Democrats kept saying it. The media kept saying it. And the fact checkers said it was true until, surprise, it wasn't true. And Obamacare critics and conservatives were vindicated instantly when millions of people lost their existing plans, including a few very close friends of mine. And then, of course, it shifted to, well, we never really said it that way, and they should be grateful anyway for these reasons. Oh, that's debatable at best, but it is what you said. Clear-cut misinformation. And they knew it wasn't true. They knew that the critics' analysis was correct. But I guess they had focus-grouped or polled this rhetoric and to reassure people that Obamacare was going to be okay for them, they had to say, even if it was false, that if you liked your plan, you could keep your plan. And so they did. And then when that was not the case for millions upon millions of people, then the same fact-checkers who had affirmed as true that misinformation, all of a sudden they changed their tune, and for PolitiFact, which is a left-leaning Democrat-aligned organization, PolitiFact actually rated the like-your-plan, keep-your-plan claim the lie of the year once that lie was exposed, even though many of us, myself included, had been warning about it for many months up to that point, in fact, years over the course of the debate, before implementation. Then, oops, here's implementation, and surprise, surprise, we were right, they were wrong, the fact-checkers were embarrassingly wrong, and the misinformation was now Lie of the year. Not true anymore. But fortunately, we had Barack Obama at this conference talking about misinformation and how dangerous and ubiquitous it is. Well, I mean, sometimes that misinformation was coming from you, sir. Then you had this exchange between, I believe, a student at the University of Chicago and a writer at The Atlantic called Ann Applebaum. And he called her out based on her coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop story back in 2020, where disinformation, as that story was called, that laptop was called Russian disinformation, actually turned out not to be disinformation at all. It's true, as we were just discussing. How did she deal with that critique? Well, just listen to Cut 29. So in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of the stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. Uh, A poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16 percent of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed uh, Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? I mean, my, my problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is, I think, totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or I mean, I don't think the Hunter Biden's um, business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the United States. So. I didn't find I don't find it to be interesting. I mean, that that would be my problem with the, that as a as a major news story. Oh, OK. It's no longer interesting. Well, that's different than it's Russian disinformation. This is fake disinformation planted by the Russians. That was the party line back then, right before the election. From the media taking cues from the Biden campaign 
also bringing in some intelligence community alumni into this picture. Big tech got in on it, of course, as well. Russian disinformation, it's fake, is what they told us. They had to censor it. It was so fake and so false and such disinformation. Now it's just not relevant and not interesting. By the way, if it wasn't relevant, why censor it? Right? There's a big difference between fake disinformation and uninteresting and irrelevant. They're not the same. Right? Those are not synonymous at all. So the party line is shifting as needed. And it's not just about Hunter Biden, of course, as we've been talking about. It goes to Joe Biden. That's why the questions are relevant. That's why his blanket denials are relevant. Even if this woman, I think, really representing the arrogance of the D.C. New York press corps, asserts otherwise. Not interesting. Not relevant. Well, that's not really for you to decide. It's for voters to decide. It's for the DOJ to decide in this case with this investigation underway. And also, of course, you've got the presidential angle, Joe Biden's actions and his categorical denials, which seem less and less plausible by the day. I just think it's so transparent what they're doing. They killed the story as disinformation when that suited their needs politically. And then with that blowing up in their faces, they have to come up with something else. So now the totally irrelevant story was so irrelevant and so uninteresting that it had to be aggressively censored and buried and throttled so people couldn't read it and wouldn't put stock in it. That doesn't make sense, does it? But that's the gymnastic act that she and others have to perform right now to justify their sliding scale and their slipperiness of partisanship and hackery, because that's what it is. You can say it's not the most important story out there. You can say it doesn't conclusively prove anything yet about Joe Biden. Fine. You can say that you personally don't find it interesting. It's not irrelevant. And it is absolutely not Russian disinformation, which was your last talking point. And I guess she had taken a shot at that time at Fox News as well. It seems like maybe Fox News viewers were better informed with less misinformation on this subject than the mainstream media audience. It would appear that that is the case, would it not? I would love a follow-up question with Ms. Applebaum, and I guess uh, she just can't be bothered. It's irrelevant and uninteresting. That's the new line, I guess. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up, and we will begin with a follow-up on a story that we covered yesterday that you need to hear its next. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the Thursday Happy Hour. On the Guy Benson Show, thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. The final hour, this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing, and it's going to start getting hotter out there, and that's when the long drink is at its best. Ice cold in warm weather. 
TheLongDrink.com is the website, TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. They've been expanding. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Our website here at the show is for people of all ages. No legal cutoff at all. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. So yesterday, during this exact segment, just after 5.05 Eastern Time, we read at some length from a New York Magazine story written by a journalist named Sean Campbell that looked into some of the expenditures of the Black Lives Matter organization. Turns out that they had bought a $6 million mansion somewhat recently in the last couple of years after their coffers filled up with tens of millions of dollars from donors. So he started sniffing around a bit journalistically, asking some questions about this $6 million mansion in Southern California. Then he got access to some of the internal deliberations about what to do about his reporting, what to do about his questions. There were people internally saying, let's try to kill the story. Let's try to spin the story. Maybe we spin it this way. Maybe we spin it that way. Those both could contradict each other, so maybe we pick one. They weren't sure what to do. What we did learn in the story that we read yesterday, you can go back and listen to the entire segment. I actually did two segments on it yesterday on the podcast if you want to. It was revealed in the reporting that journalists who've been asking questions and other people who are detractors of this Black Lives Matter organization, the organization was using private investigators to look into their backgrounds or to try to dig up information that might damage their reputation as part of their, I guess, counteroffensive against those who might be critical of BLM, the organization. That does not seem like a very transparent thing or a very social justice-minded thing to me. We also learned that critical comments and coverage of BLM were in some cases taken down, throttled, or banned from certain social media platforms because of pressure being applied behind the scenes from BLM activists to fellow woke leftists in big tech companies, such as the parent company of Facebook, which is called Meta. So when you look at a pattern of behavior reported across multiple outlets about some questionable decisions being made and just opacity, on the whereabouts and control of some of these funds for BLM, and then you layer on top of it their efforts to demonize journalists who might ask questions, get a private investigator involved, try to get stuff quashed on social media. That does not paint a very flattering or reassuring picture, I would say, for people who have donated their money to this organization. And as the New York Magazine article quotes, a number of people who are very much on board with the spirit of Black Lives Matter, they are very upset about these allegations. They are not happy with the way the money has been spent, at least in some of these cases, most recently this $6 million purchase of a house. As I mentioned a moment ago, and as we detailed yesterday reading the story, within this organization there were text messages and other communications deliberating about what they would do, how they would respond 
to these questions and this type of reporting? Well, I guess we got our answer, at least on behalf of one of these BLM leaders today. So this is the update to the story from The New York Post. Surprise, surprise. Listen to this. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors slammed a report by New York Magazine that detailed the organization's purchase of a swanky $5.8 million Southern California home, claiming the story is, quote, a racist and sexist attack on the movement itself. I said on Outnumbered today when I was co-hosting on Fox News Channel, knock me over with a feather. You have a BLM leader crying racism. And in this case, also sexism. I think she may have thrown in the sexist part because the journalist who did the story is black. So it's kind of hard to just say this is a big racist right wing white supremacy conspiracy when it's a left wing magazine and a black writer. That kind of makes the racism excuse awfully hard to swallow, even if you're inclined to do so. So for good measure, we got sexist in there, too, because he's a man. And she's a woman, you see. So asking questions about where $6 million went, that's racist and it's sexist. So predictable. So pitiful. There were legitimate questions raised in that story with a lot of details and a lot of documentation and multiple sources. What this woman, Patrice Cullors, could have done is responded to the story in detail with facts and given her side of it. That's not what she did. She attacked the journalist. She attacked the publication. And she played the victim. Colors called the article about the massive home a, quote, despicable abuse of a platform that's intended to provide information to the public. Well, actually, no, it's not despicable or an abuse. It's called journalism. That is intended to provide information to the public, and that's exactly what Sean Campbell did. She's not refuting his reporting. She's going after him with the hatchet of identity politics, which is often all leftists have. Right? That's their shield. But I think a lot of people just roll their eyes at this point. She wrote in this enraged Instagram post, The fact that a reputable publication would allow a reporter with a proven and very public bias against me and other black leaders. Let's pause there. He's done some other previous investigation into these very questions. Where did the money go? Why is it being spent this way? Why did they want to keep this house a secret as they clearly did? When you look at their text threads and emails, they wanted to kill the story. Why is that? If it's all just above board. And there's no problem. Why would they panic over this? Why would they be sicking private investigators onto the journalist who's asking the questions? Why would they be asking Facebook and others to take down the story and block people from accessing it? And again, she's making it about race. Oh, he's biased against other black leaders. He's black. Maybe just move on from the racial side of this and deal with the specifics laid out in the story. Like, let's broom all the identity stuff off to the side and deal with specifics and particulars. She is choosing not to do that, I think, for a reason. She says the piece is filled with misinformation. There's that word. Like, ding, buzzword. Innuendo and incendiary opinions. It's disheartening and unacceptable. Well, if it's misinformation, if that's the case... 
Why don't you give us the correct information as opposed to going about this personal attack, this character attack on the journalist and on the publication? Now, here's another wrinkle to this in another New York Post story. And I will remind you that when it came to a different former BLM leader who had purchased multiple homes, four homes worth millions of dollars, and people ask questions about that. The New York Post broke that story. They were able to lobby to get that story barred, censored on Facebook. So we'll see how shareable these New York Post reports might be. Although now New York Magazine has blown the lid off of some of the attempts, some of the strategies and tactics being employed to cover up and lessen the impact of negative accountability reporting about this organization. So here's the other headline. BLM's L.A. mansion sold for 250 percent more than the price of similar homes in the area. So you start talking about comps to use real estate lingo. Here's the story from the New York Post, quote, the six million dollar L.A. mansion purchased by the country's top Black Lives Matter group sold for 250 percent more than the price of similar properties in its Studio City neighborhood. And went for $2.7 million more than property records show. Let's just think about that for a second. When you look at the comps in this area, in this neighborhood, similar homes, similar properties, this one sold at nearly $6 million for 250% more. That is, I mean, I know inflation is bad. Not that bad. Listen to this. Records state that the property initially sold for $3.1 million in October 2020. But by the time it was transferred to a shell company controlled by Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, days later, the price had increased to $5.8 million. It's unclear what caused the discrepancy. A spokeswoman for BLM GNF could not be reached for comment on this story. So they go through the paper trail here. On October 21st, 2020, property records show that Pascal, one of the people involved here, a real estate developer connected to BLM, bought the mansion at a sale price of two parcels of land for $3.1 million. Two days after that purchase, October 23rd, Lawyers for the Democratic law firm Perkins Coy incorporated a limited liability company, LLC, in Delaware, named for the mansion's address. Four days after that, October 27th, the home was transferred to the company for $5.8 million, records show. Property records also show no transfer taxes were charged because this group is a tax-exempt charity. So... Putting the house in an LLC is not that unusual. Celebrities and famous people do it to sort of shield their identity so people can't find them that easily. This is a charity organization that gets tax-exempt status from the government. Maybe we can have a conversation about the ethics of putting the property in an LLC. They could probably make arguments for why they did it. What I'm trying to figure out, what other people are trying to figure out is why is it that this house and this property on two parcels was purchased by – a real estate developer connected to BLM 
on October 20th. And by October 27th, it was purchased for almost double that amount. What happened in the span of just a few days that doubled, apparently, the property value? Or was this a situation where a dollar amount was paid and there were people whose pockets needed to be lined? And so, magically, the price doubled to the tune of millions of dollars between October 20th and October 27th of 2020. Again, there might be legitimate above-board reasons for any of this. So far, we haven't gotten those explanations. What we've gotten is attacks on the people who are uncovering the information and reporting it publicly. So my question is, is it a racist and sexist question to ask how this transaction went down? Why the price skyrocketed? Why that price was 250% above similar properties in that neighborhood? Why did the dollar amount roughly double in six days? Why was the LLC used as the mechanism to make the purchase? Who benefited from it? Who pocketed that cash, especially that disparity, and why? Are those racist and sexist questions? I'm sure Patrice Cullors would say yes. Because that seems to be her game plan here. This is not the most important story in the world, obviously. But I have been warning about BLM, the organization, as opposed to BLM or Black Lives Matter, the proposition now, for a long period of time. And I also think what's interesting beyond the particulars, beyond the details of this transaction and the way they're reacting to it, it is the attack against a journalist and a journalist of color for just doing his job and seeking transparency and accountability, the way that they're attacking him, I think really shows and exposes yet again the way so many on the left, quote unquote, argue about issues. If you don't have the facts or you're embarrassed by something or you feel threatened by something, you go to the most powerful, potent political weapon you can think of, which is the R word, racist. And you use that to flog the person and basically tell him and telegraph to others, back off or you're going to have BLM calling you a racist too. I do think, though, when it's a crying wolf scenario, people aren't necessarily cowed by that anymore or convinced by it because the argument here is so weak and so inane and so utterly pathetically predictable. So hopefully those racist and sexist questions will get answered by someone because there might be tax-exempt status hanging in the balance here. Maybe tax-exempt status itself is racist. We'll see. Stay tuned for that. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Talk about having the receipts. At a hearing yesterday in the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa was talking to a nominee appointed by President Biden for the Tennessee Valley Authority's Board of Directors. Her name is Beth Pritchard Gear. And Gear, I guess, had rhapsodized about civility in her position. And so Ernst pulled up a tweet of Gear's from 2015 after 
Senator Ernst had given the GOP response to President Obama's State of the Union address in which Gere had referred to Ernst herself as, quote, hideous. Cut 33. Can you explain that tweet? I can't read it. I apologize. That's not a way of getting out of answering the question. But what I just read it to you. you, I, I heard that. Sorry. But what was the quote? The quote is, the new Republican Congress also understands how difficult these past six years have been from my State of the Union response. Well, I apologize if I offended you, and I appreciate your bringing it to my attention. And I do, in fact, believe that civility uh, is key. And I'm sorry that I did not demonstrate that in your uh, opinion with that tweet. No, she called Senator Ernst hideous. So it's not really in Ernst's opinion that that was not nice or civil. That's just a personal attack. Ernst said, well, maybe have you made a habit of calling women that you disagree with hideous, or is this an exception? And notice there was no apology there. It was, oh, well, maybe I offended you. If I offended you, I apologize. If this was offensive or not civil, in your opinion, she was just caught dead to rights and confronted with her own words. She tried to blame it. Maybe I was calling the quote hideous. Nope, it was just totally anodyne quote. She was calling Ernst hideous. Ernst had a long memory, apparently, her staff did. Put it on a big easel and had her answer for it. And the answers were pretty weak. That must have been fun for Ernst. And I think the performance there in response from Ms. Gear, we might call it hideous. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we roll along, it is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Earlier in our first hour, I had a few things to say about the announcement yesterday from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who revealed that he will be hiring hundreds of buses to drive illegal immigrants captured at the southern border to Washington, D.C., to the U.S. Capitol and letting them off there. It's a stunt. I think it's actually a pretty good one. Here's some of my analysis from earlier. Let's see how you feel when the failures of your jurisdiction might be showing up right near where you live. And by the way, why wouldn't want why wouldn't these illegal immigrants voluntarily want to get on buses and come to D.C.? To all the very generous liberal people who live in D.C. who I'm sure will just open their homes. I wonder, does Jen Psaki in her uh, her house, does she have a little sign on the front yard? In this house, we believe. And then a bunch of left-wing slogans. You've seen those. Hell, do they have one out on the South Lawn at the White House? If the consequences of the policy failures that are felt acutely every day by the people of Texas were felt acutely every day by people like Jen Psaki and Joe Biden. I wonder if this conversation might play out a little bit differently. Oh, it's just a publicity stunt. It's just a publicity stunt by Greg Abbott. You know what? Maybe it's kind of a publicity stunt. It's kind of a bit of a troll. But he is at his wits end down there. And the Democrats, to the extent that they only or ever want to talk about this, it comes when they feel like there might be a political price for them to pay at the polls. Then all of a sudden, oh, this crisis, let's uh, furrow our brows. Suddenly they're tuned into this crisis. It's a a publicity stunt, says the White House. 
unlike when the vice president went down there, the border czar, to check a box, didn't really go to the border, didn't go to a sector that was overrun, didn't see really anything controversial or of note. No, heaven forbid we have a, a publicity stunt. And to the extent that this is a publicity stunt, the goal is to bring the wages of what is happening just a taste of the reality directly into the backyard, front yard perhaps, of the people who are responsible for that mess. Oh, but the White House is concerned about legal authorities and publicity stunts. Spare me. I'm curious to see how this goes. See if this caravan happens. And if there is a big drop-off right in D.C., right by Pennsylvania Avenue, what will the good, super-woke, left-wing denizens of Washington, D.C., what will they do? What will they have to say about it? How will they act? Maybe uh, open up some of their multiple spare bedrooms. Maybe uh, open up the pool house for some of these folks. Think that's going to happen? Think that's likely? A lot of room at the White House, a lot of room on that lawn. That full monologue and all of today's show available online for free, also on demand. It's our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch in which we will discuss something that will be, I think, highly relevant and sentimental, perhaps even to a specific age group of our listeners while other age groups may have no idea what we're even talking about. That flashback to a very particular moment in time is coming up. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast, free of charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast. Also, follow us on social media if you have a chance, at GuyBensonShow. At GuyBensonShow, that's Twitter, that's also Instagram. My personal account on both of those platforms, at Guy P. Benson. So just smash that follow button, if you wouldn't mind, on both of those accounts. Twitter, Instagram, at Guy Benson Show, at Guy P. Benson. So last night I was on the bike. I actually had said on the home stretch yesterday, because we talked about melted cheese and fondue and how much of that I had consumed earlier in the week, I said, I'll do an extra long Peloton as penance to make up for it. And I didn't. I did an exercise, but it was my normal one. I didn't go extra long. But I was on the bike. And one of my favorite instructors is Cody Rigsby because he's entertaining and he distracts you from your misery while you're working out with stories and other sort of fun diversions. And he was mentioning something that I hadn't thought of in years. I think he and I are roughly the same age and the playlist. So you ride the bike to typically like a style of music. So this playlist was an early 2000s pop playlist. So roughly middle high school to early college for me. That was the era. And he was talking about something that he did as a kid, which was, and he he didn't really admit to it because it technically was not legal. I think many of us allegedly 
did stuff like this at the time, which was downloading music from the Internet without paying for it. And there were certain websites that did it. I think they got shut down at some point. There was some big lawsuit, intellectual property stuff. When you're 15 or 16 or something, you're not really thinking too hard about that. You're thinking, oh, I'd like to burn a CD of that song I like. So he mentioned a website or a service that I had not, again, thought of in a long time, LimeWire. And I was sitting there being like, oh, there was another really big one. What was it called? And it finally came to me a few minutes later, Napster. So I was of roughly that age exactly when those things probably were at their peak. It was definitely not legal. I think the statute of limitations has probably run out. I'm now 37, right? It's been 20 years. And I didn't do it very much, allegedly, many people are saying. But because he raised it, I said, you know, on one hand, I would bet producer Christine was in on this action. On the other hand, she is so bad at technology. I'm not sure if she would have even attempted to do this. I was expecting that producer Christine, if she wanted to make mixtapes, she would literally hold one tape recorder up to a radio and press record and do it that way. And you could hear, like, her coughing and stuff in the background. Christine, am I right? (laughs) You're not far off. Um, So I, I may not myself have been able to download songs, but... That's why you had boyfriends. I always would have somebody like, I would be like, could you make me a CD, please? Like, of my favorite songs. And then I write down the songs that I want to hear. And then, like, in a day I'd have a CD. So you didn't do it because you were technologically incompetent, even at an age where generally, like, the kids are cutting edge. You were, you were not that. I, I, I wasn't great. Let's just put it that way. You would manipulate boys. Yes. To break the law for you. Uh, yes. Are you familiar with LimeWire? Does that oh, ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking right now because I'm looking at Napster. I remember. I do remember trying, allegedly, possibly, to download a, a song. I, I, am I going to get myself in trouble by saying this now? Is it too? I don't think so. Okay. You could also just say allegedly. Okay, allegedly, and then like it would say like. It would take like four hours and 50-something minutes to download one Well, the one internet song. was so bad, right? Awful. The internet was much slower then. So then I would get on my AOL chat uh-huh. and then find, yeah, find somebody and be like, please, can you make me a CD? Here's all like the 15 songs I want. Thanks. Come I was by. not allowed to do AIM. What? Yeah, it wasn't. And you know what? It was a very good call by my parents because – the amount of time that was wasted on those chats from people in high school and even middle school, just oodles of time down the drain. People totally and like drama would happen over there and people would be mean to each other on there and be having these conversations and then taking sort of essentially screenshots, the old version of screenshots, like cutting and pasting and then revealing, look what so-and-so said about you. People don't change. That's the technology does. But But I wasn't allowed to do it, so I was out of all that drama. I just didn't do any of that at all in high school. But what about the away messages? That was the best part. Like, so you were gone, but you would leave, like, away message. So if, like, somebody was trying to reach you, they would, a little message would pop up. Like, say, say you and I are on AIM. 
and you're like, oh, Cookie Jar is online. Let me write to her, like, and you go, hey, bestie, it's Benson here, and I'm not at my keyboard. So my away message may be something like, hey, guys, like Carousel, I'm gone. But leave a message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it would be like little jokes, and you try to be clever in your away messages. I knew about all of this stuff through osmosis, people talking about it constantly. Oh, did you see so-and-so's away message? It was so funny. That was like middle school. That is not a thing that I ever participated in. And for those of you who are of an older age or a younger age who have no idea what we're talking about, it is AOL Instant Messenger, and it was a big thing. Dan, you're my age-ish, right? Is Was Napster, LimeWire, you're also into music. Was that part of your world, allegedly? Oh, it was huge, allegedly. I loved it. I definitely gave my family computer a lot of viruses by downloading LimeWire songs. Oh, <laughs> my yeah. sister was, would try to use it. and she It was like, not good for business no, on that front. No, 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 not at all. But I loved it. I had a, I had so many mixtapes, mixed CDs, I should say. And it was through my emo phase, too. So there's definitely a lot of fallout boy and You had an like emo that. phase. Oh, my goodness. I dyed my hair black. I had oh. long bangs. And I loved emo music at that stage. What? So so many mixtapes of emo songs. What would you say is the quintessential emo song of that era? Song? I don't know. Bands like My Chemical Romance uh-huh. and like Taking Back Sunday, Fallout Boy. Very angsty teenage stuff that really you know gets to the core of you. See, I was like downloading probably Billy Joel and then probably a few songs that if my parents had really had some more cultural awareness, just seeing the download list, they might have had a clue that one day I'd be married to a man. I'm I'm just saying. It was just there were some maybe some dead giveaways in there. (laughs) In fact, I think on the broadcast here we bumped into this segment with Shania Twain. I mean, hello. Hello. Now, across the glass from me here in Washington, D.C., in our Tony Snow studios, we have, of course, Quiet Wyatt. We also have our intern, Jordan. And they are both, well, Jordan's a college student at Howard. Wyatt is in his early 20s. So this is a very different generation. Millennials who are listening to us right now are like, oh, absolutely. They're like, I I still have those mixed CDs. Only you'd use Sharpies to draw things on the CDs and all of that. This is like this snapshot in time. For older people, they're like, yeah, I think I remember my kids doing stuff like that. Maybe. I wasn't downloading music. Wyatt, I'm wondering, have you ever heard prior to this conversation, have you ever heard of LimeWire? No, I have not. Napster. I have heard of Napster from the the Facebook movie, right? Oh, that makes sense. So you've gotten it through a pop culture reference in a movie, not because you were ever, like, aware of it yourself. Yeah, no. Whenever I wanted music as a kid, I would usually go to the store and buy a CD. Okay, so it was still CDs. Jordan, did you just, you can nod or shake your head, did you ever buy a CD or are you too young? Yes? Okay, because I feel like that's not really much of a thing anymore. Like, I would go when I was procuring music legally, which was always, allegedly, of course, I would go to Tower Records on, I believe, Route 4 in, like, was it Paramus, New Jersey, I think? You go to Tower Records, and that's where you wanted to, like, go buy the CD. And, it, you know, it was, it was a whole ritual. And then the downloading era started. I don't think the last, I can't remember the last time I actually physically bought an album. 
I believe the first CD I ever bought was in fourth grade, and it was a group called Real McCoy. They had two hits, Another Night and Run Away, which were just peak early to mid-90s. Like, if you want to bottle 1994, 1995, I was in, like, fourth grade, go back and listen to those songs. Oh, they play them on KTU, FM in New York. This is just a nostalgia segment at this point. So this was not relevant, though, Wyatt or Jordan, really, to your everyday experience. These types of illegal downloads. Did you ever burn a CD? Is that You have done that? Okay. All right. So I guess the tradition held on a little bit longer. I had, I was very excited. I had a CD player installed into my very old car at one point. Although the other option was to have the little cassette tape thing with a wire attached to it that would then plug in to an iPod later or even a Discman, which was a very, I'd say, janky setup. But it's not, you look, you do what you have to do. And you use the technology available to you. And back then, like the really rich people with the newest technology and all the money, they would have those cars with like a six or ten CD changer in the trunk. And they could switch CDs with buttons on their console of the car without having to slide physical discs in and out of the machine. It was all in the back. They had a whole array. That was really fancy stuff. That was amazing. And, of course, now it seems hilariously antiquated. Christine, you get the last word on this. I feel like you've got more things to say. I had so many of these burned CDs, but, um, I mean, mostly there were 80s. There was a lot of Michael Bolton, a lot of Phil Collins. And they were also bad, right? So they would, they like, the quality wasn't great, so they would skip. Well, and then you would have to. Like a bump, like a bump in the road, and the music would skip. And then you'd have to take them out and kind of like huff on them, remember? Yes. Yes, and you'd then, blow like, on the CD and hope that that would work. Yep. <laughs> but I was lucky. I had a car in 2001. I got a brand new Honda Accord, and it had a Whoa. six CD changer, like, but in the front. So you just put in all six CDs right away. Wow. And it had a tape player. This it was a very high end cookie. Yeah, that was a, um, um, a swindle on my dad. <laughs> Got him to get me a car. I had an old Ford Taurus wagon, green. Oh. So you had a six-CD changer. I bet you part of your problem with Carousel the Pony was when you tried to put a CD into her, and that just wasn't working. You're like, we got to get rid of this pony. We didn't have CDs when I had Carousel. Oh, even worse, was it an 8-track? Was We're trying to insert an A-track into poor Carousel, just the <laughs> amount of abuse. I'm not sure if the – we've talked about the statute of limitations on illegal music downloading. I don't know about animal abuse, Christine. I still – talk to some of our legal eagles about that. I'm still upset. You totally flew by my AOL out message. I thought it was pretty funny. It was pretty good. I, I smiled. I smiled here in the studio. It wasn't a bad reference. Anyway, if you were of a certain age between a few years, you have – been delighted by this segment, I would imagine. If you are not in that relative niche, you're probably like, okay, uh, looking forward to tomorrow's home stretch to see if they have something less specific. We will work on that. Plus, it'll be the Friday home stretch, so those are usually unhinged. 
So tune in for that. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. Back here tomorrow, we will talk to you then. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.